Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the legacy of the Florida Cracker Cowman. These days, if you're a cracker, you wear that as a matter of pride and with great honor. It's not the term that it used to be. We'll discuss artist Frederick Remington's take on Cracker Cowman culture, his initial impressions were not the same as, as the Cowboys of the West. And we'll talk about Audrey Kennedy's attempt to establish a film studio on Whedon Island in the 1930s. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. His beard may be stubble like a cut over sugar cane field. His clothes may be dirty. But the look in his eyes lets you know he won't yield. He's from a breed that has died, but he has survived. And the world he once knew is gone. He's an old cracker cowman existing a long way from home. What does it mean when someone is called a Florida cracker? Many believe that the term refers to pioneer cowmen cracking their whips. Others think that the name Florida Cracker comes from the practice of cracking corn to create dietary staples of early settlers. Jimmy crack corn and I don't care. Jimmy crack corn and I don't care. Jimmy crack corn and I don't care. Nebraska's gone away. It's also possible that William Shakespeare created the word cracker in his play King John from the 1590s. What cracker is this? The same that defs our ears with this abundance of superfluous breath. Whatever its origin, the term Florida cracker is used both positively and negatively. In its broadest sense, Florida cracker is the name for pioneer settlers and their descendants. These pioneers were mostly of Scotch-Irish heritage and first arrived in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Dana St. Clair is author of the book Cracker, the Cracker Culture in Florida History. We know that the word itself is very old. It's 16th century old English. Cracker uh, um, had an extra E in there. But it was a term that the British crown and the Spanish crown used to describe these rogue white settlers in Florida and the southeast. And we actually have uh, historical documents that describe these people as, as Crakers. The word goes way back, though. Even Will Shakespeare used it. And if I can remember it, I think it was King John, uh, the, the play, where he said, what Craker is this that deeps our ears with this abundance of superfluous breath, which is a nice way, of course, of saying somebody was full of, of hot air. The term cracker, when students, teachers, parents hear it, 
more than half, you can see their eyes light up and their, they, their eyebrows will raise because unfortunately it, it has become a derogatory term in the past. Kara Hoblick is executive director of the Florida Agricultural Museum in Palm Coast. But that's part of the education here is that we explain the process of how the cracker term came about um, and the pride. Cracker, Florida crackers are very proud that they are Florida crackers and it is a way of life, a heritage that, is, that has gone through many years and developed over time. The earliest documented usage of the word cracker refers to a braggart, a boaster, and a lover of tall tales of Scotch-Irish descent. The term evolved to include unauthorized white settlers who came to Florida before it was named a United States Territory in 1821. Dana St. Clair. By the time the Spanish and the British were settling Florida, it became known as a, a word to describe these uh, rogue white settlers who paid no attention to the authority of the crown. They would tell them where to live and they wouldn't live there and they would tell them they couldn't live in a place and they, they would and uh, we have letters going back and, and forth to the, the Spanish and the British crown describing that. The independent spirit of the crackers came from their Scotch-Irish roots. Escaping war, poverty, and religious oppression in the 1700s, they emigrated to the Carolinas and Georgia, with some making their way down into Florida. From inside the Clark Homestead at the Florida Agricultural Museum, Kara Hoblick says that the life of a Florida cracker was challenging. Daily life, just like in this house, 1880, uh, everything the family did, and it was the mom, the dad, and, and the children, from the minute they woke up until the minute they went to bed, they worked. They worked here on, on, on the farm. And anything they ate or wore or used, they produced themselves. The only, the only um, way that they would raise money was through sugarcane um, um, grinding and uh, selling sugarcane syrup. So if they needed something that they could not make, like bricks or something, they would store up the syrup, take it to town, and that was a big day to go to town and um, either trade or sell their syrup. They had the ability to settle and subsist in uh, very, very challenging areas throughout the southeast. And we know that there were the interior highlands were farmed. The, uh, there were cracker fisher folk on the coast. And you know, down in the Keys, we call them the conks. That was what a, a Key West cracker is. They figured out how to subsist very much like the Native Americans did. The Native Americans uh, developed uh, settlement patterns based on the resources that were available to them, generally food. And that includes the estuary uh, resources, shellfish and fish. Uh, there were a lot of crackers that survived that way. But in the interior areas, they grew their own food. Uh, they made their own products. They built their own houses. Uh, you know, they made their own clothes. So they were uh, self-reliant, uh, self-sufficient. Florida's cracker cowmen, also called cow hunters, made the cattle industry the driving force of Florida's economy well into the 20th century. The state was the biggest supplier of beef to the Confederate Army during the Civil War. Florida's cattle industry can be traced all the way back to Spanish exploration in the 1500s. Sandra Wise is with Crescent J Ranch at Forever Florida. Well, it was on Ponce de Leon's second trip to the New World that he brought horses, actually, and cows. 
people are not sure of how well that went on that second trip because some of the um, historical uh, information has the cattle scattering as the Calusa, I believe Indians, were the ones that met him on that trip. So perhaps the leftovers of those cattle, many of them that ran wild and ended up with the Indians, was the beginning of what we have here now and as the Florida cracker horses. There are also stories that support um, DeSoto bringing um, cattle. But uh, getting here, however they did, they're here now, the descendants of them. And we refer to them as uh, cracker cattle. They're actually Spanish from Andalusia. Cracker uh, cattle, if we can call them that, what became the Andalusian cattle were introduced by the, the Spanish. And Florida had a thriving cattle industry long before Texas and, and the Great West. But the, uh, the cracker culture sort of shifted in the early 1800s. It was mainly due to the Arms Occupation Act in the, in the early 1800s, which provided any settler with a certain amount of, of, of land so it became prosperous, it became attractive to folks to start raising cattle and getting free land to do that. A lack of fences on the open Florida range allowed unscrupulous cracker cowmen to overbrand stray cattle that didn't belong to them and claim new calves from other herds. Dana St. Clair. Thousands and thousands of these cattle escaped over fenceless uh, ranges and um, it was very popular to, uh, for cracker cow hunters at one time to overbrand and, and collect rogue cattle. And Frederick Remington, when he wrote his article in the late 19th century, was utterly disappointed and wrote this fantastic, wonderful, disparaging piece in Harper's New Monthly magazine. And he was so incensed by what he saw, it wasn't the romanticized Western cowboy culture that he had just experienced. It was something radically different, but because he was so upset with the way that he was treated and what he saw that he described it in meticulous detail. So it's one of the best ethnographic accounts that we have of the uh, late 19th century cracker cow hunter and, and cowman culture. In 1949, Florida became the last state to pass a mandatory fence law to keep individual cattle herds contained, effectively ending the practice of rebranding. While cracker cowmen no longer have to round up their cattle on the open range, the name cow hunter is still used. Kara Hoblick. There were no fences. So the, the cowboys that would go out into the, the scrub to collect the cattle were actually called cow hunters because they would go to hunt, hunt their cattle if they needed to come collect them for branding or to take them to market. Um, and we do have heritage cracker cattle here. And there's associations that are extremely um, diligent about making sure that that, it, that breed is pure. They will not add an animal to their registry unless it is documented and, and certified that it's a true cracker animal. Sandra Wise of Crescent J Ranch at Forever Florida. Some of the uh, history books refer to the what we call cracker 
cattle as like donkeys <laughs> in that they're very small, they're bony. Some of the information all says they're not very good for either beef or milk, but they're very hardy. They've got good um, immune systems, external parasites, internal parasites, and that's true of the horses too, the Florida cracker horses, which are the, of that Spanish bloodline. Cracker culture still exists in Florida, but urban sprawl continues to threaten this rural way of life. Dana St. Clair. The long arm of civilization is reaching into these areas, like southern Ocala, which is now the villages, used to be cracker uh, country all the way down to Brooksville. I grew up there. I remember seeing that every time I, I took a trip that way. But they're disappearing. Kara Hoblick. To teach the Florida cracker heritage is so important because uh, it's, it's a way of life. It's very important to the, to the many generations that have grown up in this area. Uh, there are some, some families here that have been here for five generations, and, and this is their family's history. This is a story that needs to be told. And that is one thing that the, the Florida Agriculture Museum, it's our mission to, to tell the story of Florida agriculture's past, present, and future. And the cracker is the past, it is the present. There are still many people still living the cracker lifestyle, and we need to continue that in the future too. Dana St. Clair, author of the book Cracker, The Cracker Culture in Florida History. These days, uh, if you're a cracker, you, you wear that as a, a matter of pride and, and, uh, and with great honor. Uh, it's not the term that it used to be. It happened somewhere around the time Jimmy Carter became president and the Southern culture started to emerge and um, people were fascinated with it. And, uh, but these days, crackers are, are the, at least the ones that aren't terribly private, uh, crackers are quick to tell you about their heritage because uh, it is that. It isn't just a description of, of a, a people, it's a description of their culture, and that's really what they embrace. The population of Florida has been expanding exponentially since the mid-20th century. Cow pastures, farmland, and citrus groves are replaced with housing developments, shopping centers, and highways. Florida's cracker culture is being preserved, though, at places like the Pioneer Settlement for the Creative Arts in West Volusia County, Fort Christmas Historical Park in East Orange County, and at the Florida Agricultural Museum in Palm Coast. And dirt bikes scream over land that used to be scrub cow trails and interstate highways have taken the place of old Mr. Flagler's rails and condos rise from the land and space shuttles fly and the old cracker cowman don't know how it all passed him by This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, we've been discussing Florida cracker cowman, and renowned artist Frederick Remington came to Florida to document this culture. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Remington is probably best known for his artwork and depictions of the cowboys out west and the indigenous populations, Native American populations that interacted with U.S. troops during what we call the American Indian Wars period, so post-Civil War, 1870s, 1880s. He became a world-renowned and at least internationally known sculptor, painter, illustrator, and actually a writer. So he was sent out into the West and really tried to capture, in their essence, the true depictions of what it was like to be a cowboy, you know, to, to sort of be out on the frontier in the Western part of the United States. But by about about 1890, you know, much of that world had essentially disappeared, and Remington really, you know, longed for the the cowboys of yesteryear. And in 1895, he received a commission to head down to Florida, and as you put it, to depict what many termed as the last remaining American cowboy that lived on the Florida frontier. And in 1890, you know, Florida really was still a frontier. Uh, according to the 1890 census, south of Orlando, there were about two people per square mile on average. So very, very desolate landscape. A lot of these early cow hunters or cow men, as they were called locally, these were a fairly rough bunch. There were no you know, fence laws. There were all kinds of conflicts over cattle that were generally settled extra legally you know, through gunfighting and things like that. So Remington came down here to, uh, to chronicle that. And he actually wrote a, a fairly lengthy article that was published in Harper's Monthly magazine in 1895. But his initial impressions were not the same as, as the cowboys of the West. In fact, he was actually in, in Arcadia in southwest Florida when he first caught a glimpse of, of what he termed as a curious cowboy. And he says here, quote, Two very emaciated Texas ponies pattered down the street bearing wild-looking individuals whose hanging hair and drooping hats and generally bedraggled appearance will remind you at once of the Spanish moss which hangs so helplessly to the limbs of the oaks out in the swamps. There was none of the bilious fierceness and rearing plunge which I had associated with my friends out west. The only things they did which were conventional were to tie their ponies up by the head in brutal disregard and then get drunk in about 15 minutes, unquote. <laughs> so Remington wasn't too impressed, it doesn't sound like. Not initially, yeah, but uh, but he went on and, and created a, a series of now famous depictions and, and really some of the only true depictions of, of what these individuals look like and what their equipment was like and some of their actions and how they operated in the 1890s. Well, while Remington was here documenting the lives of Florida cracker cowmen, he looked at other aspects of Florida culture as well, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. In fact, what we're looking at today is an original copy of Harper's Weekly from May of 1895. And this is just a one-page spread, but it's a series of illustrations that Remington created, and it's entitled Winter Shooting on the Gulf Coast of Florida. He was also interested in sporting aspects that were popular in the late 19th century, so hunting and fishing and things like that. And he writes a little bit about the tarping fishing, sport fishing that was going on in southwest Florida. But he warns the intrepid angler, don't waste your time with that. Instead, grab a gun and go shoot ducks in southwest Florida. And that's what all of these illustrations depict. In fact, he writes that it was so easy, quote, ducks down there in Florida are confiding birds, and a boat loaded with girls and grub and scotch whiskey and soda can be sailed right up to them while the sportsman empties his shotgun and fills his game bag, unquote. Now, by today's standards, it seems a little bit brutal, but in the 19th century, this was very popular. Sportsmen came down and took part in a lot of these hunting activities. But these are really beautifully drawn depictions of 
what the actual sport was like. And they're very lifelike, very alive. It really feels like you're kind of standing there with these individuals on the southwest coast of Florida, kind of engaging in these activities. And Remington came to Florida once again to document history, right? Yeah, that's right. Remington was fascinated with the military. As I said, he'd spent time in the West during the Indian Wars, but he really wanted to kind of get in the middle of some kind of conflict. And he got that chance in 1898 with the Spanish-American War. He was good friends with FDR and kind of became a part of the New York social culture. So he came down to Tampa, where a lot of the military was garrisoned, where they were training, and he started creating a lot of these paintings and drawings and portraits and still lifes and things like that that would eventually be published in national magazines, including Harper's. But he actually traveled to Cuba and witnessed the Battle of San Juan Hill and these very famous you know, engagements that made Teddy Roosevelt, of course, a, a national figure. He was right there. He was friends with these people. So he got his little taste of war. So he embarked on that journey from Tampa, came back to Florida briefly, spent a little bit of time in Key West, and then went back to New York. And unfortunately, he never came back. He died fairly young in 1909. But his images, like I said before, his depictions of the Cracker Cowmen, his work that he did during the Spanish-American War, and even some of these lighter pieces about hunting and fishing in Florida will kind of live on forever. And they really capture the true spirit of what it was like in Florida at that time. They do. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to look at Remington's drawings of Florida history and culture that we've been talking about, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Many attempts have been made to make Florida a center of filmmaking to rival Hollywood, California. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this look at Aubrey Kennedy's attempt to establish a film studio on Whedon Island. During the silent film era, Florida became a center for film production due to the pleasant weather, beautiful scenery, inexpensive property prices, and low production costs. By 1920, there were dozens of film companies operating in Jacksonville alone. In the late 1920s, the transition from silent films to talking pictures caused another wave of filmmakers to flock to Florida. Veteran film producer, director, and screenplay writer Aubrey Kennedy, known for producing silent westerns such as Hellbent from 1918 and The Masked Rider from 1919, wanted to capitalize on the renewed interest in film production in Florida. In 1933, Aubrey Kennedy established a film studio on Whedon Island in Pinellas County, just outside of St. Petersburg. Dr. David Morton is an instructor of history at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. He is also an organizer and the program director for the Flickering Landscapes Conference Series that explores place, space, and identity by examining regional film culture and history. Aubrey Kennedy notices all this momentum building up in the community over trying to build a 
Blasting Film Production Studio, and he manages to get community funds, some state support, and he ends up building a very flimsy film soundstage on Whedon Island, and initially starts uh, promoting quite heavily. Um, he even gets the attention of MGM Studios at the time, and by getting this additional attention, um, he also starts trying to attract some star power. In 1933, Aubrey Kennedy hired the struggling silent film comedian Buster Keaton to star in a series of low-budget talking pictures, including a film called The Fisherman. Buster Keaton was at this point really at the nadir of his career. Keaton had, of course, enormous success as an independent silent filmmaker, and then by the end of the 1920s, he gets involved in a disastrous contract with none other than MGM, which completely limits and stifles his creative freedom. His last great film, The Cameraman, comes out in about 1928, and from this point on, he's just attempting to reassert himself, especially now in a talking film capacity. Um, unlike many of his other silent film contemporaries, I mean, if you hear Buster Keaton, he really does have a strong, powerful voice, and he has really good stage and comedic timing. He came from a vaudeville background, and he was definitely well set to be a great sound comedian. He just had not had the opportunity to do so. So he seemed quite intrigued by what Whedon Island and what Aubrey Kennedy and Kennedy City Studios had to offer. Buster Keaton, recently fired from MGM due to his excessive drinking, signed a contract with Kennedy Studios to make several films. Almost upon arrival, Buster Keaton began to have second thoughts about Kennedy Studios. So he shows up, notices that there's literally no organization whatsoever. In fact, ultimately, the soundstage itself um, was so ill-equipped and really prepared that like a swarm of mosquitoes ends up um, coming through, and he got like literally eaten alive by them, got incredibly sick as a result of that. After, I would say, no less than about two weeks, he just says, nope, and gets out of there. In August of 1933, Buster Keaton abruptly left Kennedy Studios, citing financial misrepresentation and difficult working conditions. Dr. David Morton. Within about a week after Buster Keaton leaves, Aubrey Kennedy just suddenly says, oh, I need to go on vacation with my family up to the Adirondacks, packs up his bags, um, probably stole a couple thousand dollars worth of taxpayer money in the process, and then hightails it up to the Adirondacks, never to come back to St. Petersburg or Whedon Island or elsewhere. And, and with that, that's basically the end of Kennedy Studios. Soon after Aubrey Kennedy fled Whedon Island, the studio property was foreclosed on by the Internal Revenue Service. The IRS confiscated the films, the soundstage, and the production facility for tax purposes. The last remnants of Kennedy Studios, a soundstage, was destroyed by fire in 1963. Even though Kennedy Studios no longer exists, the story of the short-lived film studio still persists in the public memory of Whedon Island. Today, Whedon Island is a 3,000-acre preserve listed on the National Register of Historic Places. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like our annual meeting and symposium and much more. You can also join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. 
Our web extras and this week a bit of Shakespeare are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.